right, grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. While you're turning there, let's start with a little bit of daydreaming, shall we? Um, I'd like you to imagine heaven with me for a moment. You can use your, you know, creativity here. Imagine heaven with me. Imagine what the Bible describes as a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more sin, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more death. Imagine these descriptions that were given in Scripture of streets made out of pure gold. I want you to imagine getting to see all of your loved ones that have gone before you, that have passed away in the Lord, and getting to be reunited with them again and the joy of being all together. I want you to imagine with me the reality of a resurrection body, the reality that we'll be able to eat Krispy Kreme donuts and Ben and Jerry's ice cream and all the pizza that you can eat and still have a six-pack. I want you to imagine getting to meet all of your heroes in the faith that you never had an opportunity to meet in this life. I know for me, I want to have a coffee date with the Apostle Paul because I have so many questions. I want you to imagine getting to do all of the activities that you enjoy that you don't maybe have time for in this life. Maybe for you, it's playing more golf. Maybe it's the music that you'll get to experience in heaven. Maybe it's getting to go explore the world, the parts that you've never gotten to see before, or maybe even the universe. Who knows? Doesn't that sound pretty awesome to you? Now, let me ask you this question. Does anyone notice anything missing from that description? God. Other than that, it's fine. But God, I just described heaven without God. And now I want to ask you this question. How does that sound? Does that sound appealing to you? Would you be able to enjoy eternity in paradise without God? Because in essence, that is exactly what the Israelites are offered in this passage this morning. They are offered the promised land without God. And how would they respond? And what does this have to teach you and me about the importance of the presence of God in our lives? Well, let's look in Exodus chapter 33, and let's find out. Let's start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to receive what you would teach us from this word. Lord, help us to understand just how important it is to be with you. What a blessing that is. So, Father, help us to understand this and apply it to our lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in this text is the threat of God's absence. The threat— 
of God's absence. So God tells the people to leave Mount Sinai and to start heading to the promised land. He promises an angel to go before them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. He reminds them, hey, the place that you're going is flowing with milk and honey, which is just a way of saying it's a place of abundance, a place of prosperity. So far, so good, right? I mean, remember last week, God threatens to wipe them out after the sin with the golden calf. So, so far, so good. You're still getting the promised land. But halfway through verse three, things take a disastrous turn. God said, you can still have the promised land, but I'm not going. He said, I will not go up among you lest I consume or destroy you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. That phrase stiff-necked, you say it all the time in the Old Testament. It's just a, a metaphorical way of saying stubborn, rebellious, hard-headed. You are a rebellious and stubborn people. And so the people are devastated here. It says they take off their ornaments. Now don't think like Christmas tree ornaments. Think like jewelry. They take off their bling, right? This is a sign of mourning. They're grieving that God's not going with them. One commentator wrote, they were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservations. But God intended this to be a sign of grace. God says twice here, hey, if I went with you, even for a moment, I would consume you. I would destroy you. But obviously they can't go to the promised land without God. That's the whole point of the Exodus. Why did God bring them out of Egypt in the first place? That he would be their God and they would be his people. So I want you to think about this for a minute. They can't go with God because he'll destroy them. They can't go without God because being with God was the whole point in the first place. Israel was living out the words of those great theologians. You too. I can't live, you know, with or without you. They can't go with God, he'll destroy them. They can't go without him because that's the whole point of their salvation and they are in, they're devastated. This is the worst news they could have received. God was threatening his absence, but let's be honest for a minute. Maybe there are some of us in this room, if we were there, we might have been tempted to say, all right, God, we'll miss you, but thanks for the trip. We'll send you a postcard. We need to understand that it is the presence of God that makes the promised land glorious. We need to understand that it is the presence of God that makes heaven glorious. Without the presence of God, Israel is just like the nations around them. They might as well be Egypt. They might as well be the Canaanites. It is the presence of God that makes them distinct. God is not like that annoying family member who you secretly wish didn't come to Thanksgiving. You know, that one that texts you and they're like, oh, sorry, I had to work, I can't make it. And you're like, oh, darn, that, no shucks, that stinks. Sorry, you can't make it. On the inside, you're like, yes. God's not like that. Him being there was the whole point. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here with God threatening his absence? The story continues in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would 
rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to spoke, speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. In the next scene of this story, we see the reality of God's distance. The reality of God's distance. So the text tells us that Moses used to make a tent and go and meet with God outside the camp. I want to be clear for a minute. This is not the same tent that Pastor Marcus taught us about two weeks ago, the tabernacle, okay? This is different. This is a much smaller tent. This was temporary and provisional that Moses would set up outside the camp to go and meet with God. When Moses would meet there, the pillar of cloud, you remember that, it symbolized God's presence would descend on the tent and God would speak with Moses. And when the people would see this, they would worship God at the entrance of their tents. And the text tells us, it's fascinating, that Moses used to go there and he would meet with God face to face, just like a man would talk to his friend. This is a way of describing the intimacy that Moses had with the Lord, that he would have this intimate fellowship with him. But there's a key detail here that I don't want you to miss. It says three times in this paragraph that the tent was not in the camp, that it was not among the people. It says it was outside the camp. It says it was far off from the camp. And then lastly, it says again, it was outside the camp. And it mentions here that the people would stand at the doorway of their own tents and they would watch what was going on at this tent. Why does it include all these details? I think that Moses, the author here, wants to stress the fact of God's distance from the people at this time. Only Moses and his assistant Joshua would go to this tent and meet with God. And I think this was in response to their sin with the golden calf. Because remember two weeks ago, what was the point of the tabernacle that we studied? Exodus 25, 8. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell outside the camp? No, that I may dwell in their midst. The whole point of this tabernacle that we studied was so that God could be with his people. And now God is far away outside the camp with only Moses. This is the reality of God's distance. And this leads to some, some serious dramatic tension in the story. God has threatened his absence, and now he is at a distance from the people. And this is what leads to the key question in this chapter. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? That's what we're about to find out. And we're about to see the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence. Look with me at verse 12. So Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What we're about to see in the rest of this chapter is this incredible exchange between Moses and the Lord, where Moses is pleading with God, please don't leave us. Please go with us. 
what I want to do in the next part of this sermon is I want to first look at Moses' requests, and then I want to look at God's response. So let's start with Moses' requests. We're going to see Moses ask God for three things here. First, Moses says to God, be with me. Be with me. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13. Moses says, God, you told us that we're going to the promised land, but you haven't told us who's going with us. Yet you have told me, God, You've told me that you know me and that I have found favor with you. And then this is his request. He says, please now show me your ways. Show me who you are, God. Reveal your presence to me. Moses, he's feeling overwhelmed here at the prospect of leading this rebellious people. And he's afraid that God's going to leave. And so he's saying, God, be with me. And the Lord says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And I will give you rest. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar? I will give you rest. What does the Lord Jesus say to those who are broken, to those who are weary, to those who are burdened? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, when we are burdened, when we are weary, when we are being crushed under the weight of sin and suffering in our life, Jesus promises rest to those that come to him. So let me encourage you this morning. Maybe you came in this morning carrying a heavy load. Maybe you came in this morning struggling with temptation, with trials, whatever it is that you're facing. Scripture gives us an open invitation to come to Jesus to find rest in him, to find peace, joy, strength in him. If you came up this morning, beat up, if you came in this morning, beat up by life, come to Jesus. So if Moses first says, be with me, and God says, I will, but Moses asks for something else next. Next, he says, be with us. First, it's be with me. Next, it's be with us. Look at verse 15. He, that's Moses, said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Church, something fascinating happens in verse 14 that's really easy to miss in English. So when God says to Moses in response to his request, hey, be with me, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But the you in both cases is singular in Hebrew. In other words, I think that God is saying to Moses, yes, I will be with you. But I'm not making any promises about them. I will be with you. And then look at what Moses says in verse 15. He's not content with that. He prays a bold prayer. He said, God, if you're not going with us, then leave us here. Do not bring us up from here if you're not coming. We would rather die in the desert with you than go to the promised land, heaven on earth, without you. And he said, not me alone. He says twice, I and your people, so that we are distinct. And God said to Moses, verse 17, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. 
Remember, God threatened his absence in the beginning of this story. He said, I'm not going with you. And now God is taking back that threat. He's saying, this very thing that you've spoken, Moses, I will do. And this is the key to this text. Why? Why is God taking back his threat? Because he says to Moses, because you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Why can God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Because God is pleased with their mediator. Because God is pleased with their mediator. That's the key to this story. It's the same as last week. The key is that God delivers a sinful people through a mediator. In the old covenant, Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. He stood in the gap. He represented the people to God, and he represented God to the people. But notice that Moses is an imperfect mediator in these stories. He can ask God to relent of the disaster that he threatens, but he can't deal with their sins. Moses cannot pay for the sins of his people so that they can dwell in his presence. This shows us that we need another mediator, that we need a better mediator than Moses. But in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap between us and God. And here's the key. Don't miss this. Why did God agree to go with Israel to the promised land? Because he was pleased with their mediator. You have found favor in my sight. Why will God never abandon you? Because he's pleased with our mediator. Matthew 3, 17. What does God say of Christ? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the true and better mediator of which Moses was just a shadow. And unlike Moses, who could only pray for the people, Jesus pays for the sins of all who trust in him on the cross. Jesus is our true and better mediator. My hope is that we would trust in him today, that we would cling to him today. But Moses isn't done. He saved his most audacious prayer for last. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. His third request is, God, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. That's what he's saying here. He's asking for a special demonstration of God's glory. Show me your glory. Now, the word glory in Hebrew, it literally means to be weighty, to be heavy. It speaks of the full weight of God's majesty, of his splendor. Moses is asking for a fuller revelation of God, but we need to ask the question, why? Why is he asking to see God's glory? And why here? I think we often read this verse and we put it in worship songs and things like that, and that's great. But when we hear this verse, we think Moses just wanted a spiritual high. Moses wanted a mountaintop experience. Moses just wanted some sort of spiritual ecstasy. And I think that's kind of missing the point. I think that's ignoring the context. What is Moses asking for here? He's asking for reassurance that God really will go with them. He's asking that he will be reassured that God really will go with him and the people, and he really will lead them to the promised land. Let me put it this way. God just told Moses that he's coming, but now Moses wants to see God's glory so that he can be reassured and strengthened that God will be with him. These are Moses' requests. Be with me. Be with us. And I want to know you more. 
Now, with these three requests made, how is God going to respond? Let's look at God's response. There's a few things here. Let's look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The first response is his name. God said, I will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. Now Moses might be tempted to think, well, great. I already know your name. That's not what I'm asking for, Lord. I want to see, I want the fireworks show, God. Like, I want the big demonstration of glory. I just want to hear your name. But that's not the case at all. You see, God's name is a manifestation of his glory. And do you remember how Moses was called into ministry in the first place? Do you remember what God told Moses in the very beginning? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He's pointing him back to the very beginning of his calling and proclaiming his name. This whole thing began with God proclaiming his name to Moses, and now he's bringing him right back there. My glory is in my name, that I am the great I am, that I am self-sufficient, eternal, unchanging, sovereign, the great I am. But I want you to notice something incredible here. Again, Moses asks to see God's glory, but God says, I will proclaim my name. Moses wanted the fireworks, but he got a sermon. You might think he's getting ripped off, but here's the important thing. In Scripture, God often reveals his glory by revealing his own name and character in his word. He reveals his glory through his word. That is why at Coastal we place such a high value on Scripture as the word of God. When we read and we preach God's word, God shows us his glory through his word. Now can you see why we're constantly telling you to read your Bible? Now, can't you see why we're constantly saying we need to be in corporate worship, sitting under the preaching of the word, so that it's a spiritual box that we check? Of course not, because it's how God shows us his glory, how he reveals himself to us. So God tells Moses his name, but next he tells him about his character. He tells him about his character. God says to Moses in verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Let's park the car here for a minute. Let's stay here for a couple of minutes. We need to spend some time here in verse 19 because these words are loaded with theological significance. What does it mean when the Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious? Well, this verse, church, is teaching us about God's sovereign freedom to display mercy to whomever he pleases. God is not obligated to show grace to anyone. Grace and obligation don't mix. If there was obligation involved, it would no longer be grace. It would be owing a debt. God is not obligated to save even one sinner. God is under no obligation to show grace, but he chooses to as an overflow of his character. God is free to show grace to whomever he pleases. That's what it means when it says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. The text does not say I will be gracious to those that deserve it. 
The text doesn't even say, I will be gracious to those who want it. He says, I will be gracious to who I will be gracious. You know, this verse is actually quoted in the New Testament, and it's applied to the church in a fascinating way that I want to show you. It's done so in one of perhaps the most infamous chapters of the Bible, in Romans chapter 9. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, leave a finger in Exodus 33 and flip over to Romans chapter 9 with me. I want you to see this in your Bible, that I'm not making this stuff up that God uses this truth from Exodus 33:19 in a powerful and profound way. Now, just to set up the context, right? Romans 1 through 8. God unpacks the Paul, well, God yes too, they're both of them. Uh, God and Paul in Romans 1 through 8 unpack the gospel in a powerful and profound way. But that leads to a question in chapter 9. Well, what about Israel? If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why have so many Jews rejected him? Paul tells the Romans that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, being a part of God's family is not about ethnicity. It's about believing God's promises. Those who believe God's promises really are God's family, the true Israel, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And to take it a step further, what is the basis of these promises? What are they grounded in? And Paul's answer is one that we don't always like. But it's what he says in Romans 9. The basis of these promises are God's purposes in election. That God has the freedom to choose whomever he pleases. And he illustrates this in Romans 9 by showing that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. That he chose Jacob instead of Esau. Not based on anything that they had done, but because it was God's purpose to do so. Now, with that in mind, now we're ready to see how Paul uses Exodus 33 in Romans 9. So look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and here's where he quotes our verse, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So how does Paul apply that truth? Now look at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul knows that whenever this topic comes up, God's freedom to choose, the normal human response is, that's not fair. Or as Paul puts it, is there injustice on God's part? Paul deals with this objection by quoting two verses from Exodus, including the verse that we are studying this morning. He quotes God saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then he applies that by saying, so then... It's not up to the human will. It's dependent on God who has mercy. The unavoidable conclusion here, church, if you've been following me and you're not asleep yet, is that salvation is not ultimately grounded in the human will. It is grounded in the mercy of God and the sovereign grace of God. So now, all that in mind, let's go back to Exodus. And we need to ask the question, why is any of that relevant right here? Like, why did God say that here? Is he looking at Moses in response to this request to see his glory? And he's like, all right, you know what you need, Moses? 
you need a theology lesson in predestination. And you know why? Because I don't think you've read Grudem yet. So that's what we need here, Moses. You need a theology—that's not what's going on here. Why does he say that here and now? Remember the context. Moses wants reassurance that God will be with him. And now God is showing Moses, the reason you know I will be with you, the reason you know I will continue to have grace for this sinful people is because their salvation was never dependent on them in the first place that I will save them because I have sovereignly determined to do so, and there is nothing that they can do to reverse that. That grace is ultimately a work of God. So why should we care about this? Because if you're a Christian, in the same way, your salvation is not ultimately grounded in you. It's not ultimately dependent on you. It's dependent on the sovereign grace of God. You and I are just as rebellious, just as idolatrous, just as stiff-necked as these Israelites were. And we are only saved because God chose to pour out his grace and mercy on us. And that should do things in our heart. That should humble us because God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. That should fill us with gratitude because we most certainly did not deserve it. And it should give us a great security and reassurance because the God that began this good work in us will most certainly see it through to the end. So how is God going to respond to Moses' request to see his glory? This chapter ends with God responding to this request where he promises a glimpse of glory. A glimpse of glory. Verse 20, But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses asks to see God's glory, and yes, said, Moses said, God said, sorry, yeah, but kinda, is his response. Yeah, but kinda. I will let you see just a little glimpse of my glory because that's all you can handle, is what God is saying to Moses. He talks here about his back and his hand and his face. And I want you to understand something here. God is spirit in his essence. He is spiritual. It says in John 4, 24, God is spirit. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 17, that God is invisible. Okay, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. So I want you to understand here, quick little theology lesson. When the Bible talks about things like God's face, God's back, God's hand, I'm going to give you a big word here. You ready for it? It's using anthropomorphic language. Say it with me, everybody at the same time. Anthropomorphic. You got to drop that in conversation later so people are like, oh, wow. What does it mean? It means anthro, man, morph, uh, form. Language in human form. Anthropomorphic simply means that you're using human language to describe a non-human reality. Okay, so when the Bible talks about God's face, God's hand, God's back, God is not literally a human being with a face and a back and hands. He is spiritual in his essence. But what it's doing is it's using this kind of anthropomorphic language to teach us something about God using categories that you and I are familiar with. So for Moses wanting to see God's face, that would represent the full, unbridled manifestation of God's presence and glory. 
His back then would be the same reality, but to a far lesser extent. So what God is saying here, let's put all these pieces together. Moses wants to see God's glory. God told Moses, you can't handle the full manifestation of it, so I'm going to shield you and give you just a small glimpse of glory. And next week, Brian is going to talk to us from Exodus 34 about what it looks like when that happens. But as Christians, how do we see God? How do we see God? Well, Jesus tells us that. In John 14, the night before his death, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, seeing Jesus is seeing God. God is invisible, but Scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So how do we see God as Christians? Through seeing Jesus, through beholding Jesus. Jesus is what God is like. We might be amazed, and we will be next week, when we see this glimpse of glory that Moses received on Mount Sinai. But I want you to think about this. Every time you open up your Bible and you read about Jesus Christ, God incarnate, you are receiving more glory than Moses could have even imagined. Glory that would have made Moses jealous. So now that we've walked through this passage, I hope that the main point of this story has become abundantly clear. Because here it is. Despite their sin, God's people will still dwell in his presence because of their mediator. That's what we learn from this chapter. That despite their sin, God's people will still dwell in his presence because of their mediator. Even though they have broken the covenant, even though they have sinned, God will still dwell among the people because their mediator interceded on their behalf. The presence of God is what made Israel distinct. It's what made the promised land glorious. And in the same way as followers of Christ, it is the presence of God that makes us distinct as the church. It's what's going to make eternity with God glorious. And I want to close this morning by asking us two questions that we should reflect on this week. I want to ask you two questions that I want you to reflect on, to meditate on. The first is this. Do you want God or only God's gifts? Do you want God or only God's gifts? God offered Israel the promised land without God, and to their credit, they didn't want it. Moses said, God, we'd rather stay in the desert than go without you. And we began our sermon this morning by imagining heaven without God. And let me ask you, would you want that? Do you really genuinely desire God or do, do you desire God's stuff? Would you be content to enjoy God's blessings and gifts apart from God? Because that's exactly what the prodigal son wanted. He wanted the father's inheritance so that he could go away and do his own thing, but he didn't want the father. We do the same thing. We say to God, I want your blessings. I want your stuff. Because by the way, what is God's stuff? Everything. He made it. He owns it. The breath that you just breathed, that was God's air. Everything is a gift from God. Do we want God's stuff or do we want God? Church, let's learn to be satisfied with Christ alone. 
Let's learn to say along with the psalmist, Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I desire beside you. If there's something in your heart that you've been elevating above the creator, repent of it and learn to enjoy the relationship with God above all else that you were created for. Last question. Are you enjoying God's presence? Are you enjoying God's presence? Moses had an intimate relationship with the Lord. It said that he would meet with God and talk to him face to face like you'd talk to a friend. Is that what your relationship with God looks like? Is God your best friend? Is God the one that you can't wait to tell about your day? The one that you can't wait to talk to? The one who you want to share what's on your mind and what's on your heart? Do you know that that's what God wants for you? That God doesn't just love you, he likes you. He's interested in you. He wants to hear from you. That is what will make God glorified in our lives. Piper famously put it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So let's spend quality time enjoying God's presence. Let me give you a few ways we do that practically. The first is prayer. Prayer. This story could be viewed as an example of bold prayer. Because that's what the second half of the chapter really is. It's Moses' prayer and God's response. Prayer is the way that we enjoy our relationship with God. But let's be real for a minute. Is prayer always easy? Okay, I guess it is for y'all. I mean, it's not for me. It's, it's, I think it's pretty hard a lot of the time. I don't know about you. Prayer is hard sometimes to maintain a disciplined, consistent prayer life. It's so hard. When you get busy, what's the first thing that often goes? Our time with the Lord in prayer. We get busy. Sometimes our prayer life can become dry or boring, right? We can get in a rut where we're constantly just every morning, almost like it's a formula that we're repeating, saying the same old things. Sometimes we go through seasons where we treat God like a fire alarm, right? Where we only go to God when things are bad. We only go to God when we need something. But what can we do differently? Here's my encouragement. Reframe the purpose of prayer in your mind. The purpose of prayer is not to get things from God. The purpose of prayer is to get more of God. It's not to get things from God. It's to get more of God, to enjoy your relationship with him. When you do that, prayer will stop being this spiritual chore that you have to do to be a good little Christian, and it becomes a way of enjoying your heavenly father. It becomes something that you get to do. You know, I can remember when Megan and I were dating, early on in our relationship, we used to just love talking so much. I can remember times where we would literally stay up all night talking. Like the sun came out the next day and we were still talking about absolutely nothing. About absolutely nothing. That's hilarious now because seven years into marriage, it's now like 9.30 and we're struggling to stay awake. But I can remember staying up all night just to talk about absolutely nothing because when you love someone, you want more than anything else to talk to them. You want more than anything else to be with them, to be in their presence. So here's the challenge. Find time every day this week to get alone with God and pray. For some of you, you need to pull out your phone right now and set your alarm 30 minutes earlier. For some of you, you got to commute to work and you need to turn off the podcast or turn off the music and spend time with the Lord in prayer. Whatever works for you, find time during the day so that you can get alone with God and enjoy time in his presence in prayer.
one more encouragement. With this, I'd like to invite up the worship team and the prayer team. Let's enjoy the presence of God together in corporate worship. God has promised that he will manifest his presence in a special way when his people are gathered together to worship him. Corporate worship is not just a religious box for you to check on your to-do list. It is us enjoying fellowship with our Heavenly Father, meeting with Him face to face like friends. I want this to be a time where we enjoy the presence of God together as we sing praise, as we prayer, as we sit under the preaching of God's Word, and then as we give of ourselves in giving and in serving to show God how much He is worth to us. Let's be committed to gathering together faithfully to enjoy God's presence together. Let's close with prayer this morning. God, we thank you that you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has said to us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, we thank you that even though we are a sinful people, you have promised that you will be with us because you are pleased with our mediator. I pray that today we would leave from this place filled with gratitude for who you are and filled with a renewed resolve to spend time in your presence. Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.